Section four of the Junior Classics, Volume six, Old Fashioned Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brooke Favorite, www.alongsidemom.com. The Junior Classics, Volume six, Old Fashioned Tales, Section four. The Private Theatricals by Mrs. A. D. T. Whitney. Saturday was a day of hammering, basting, draping, dressing, rehearsing, running from room to room. Upstairs, in Mrs. Green's garret, Leslie Goldthwaite and Dacky Thane, with a third party never before introduced upon the stage, had a private practicing, and at tea-time, when the great hall was cleared, they got up there with Sin Saxon and Frank Sherman, locked the doors, and in costume, with regular accompaniment of bell and curtain, the performance was repeated. Dacky Thane was stage manager and curtain-puller, Sin Saxon and Frank Sherman represented audience, with clapping and stamping and laughter that suspended both, making as nearly the noise of two hundred as two could, this being an essential part of the rehearsal in respect to the untried nerves of the deputante, which might easily be a little uncertain. "'He stands fire like a Yankee veteran.' "'It's inimitable,' said Sin Saxon, wiping the moist merriment from her eyes, and your cap, Leslie, and that bonnet, and this unutterable old oddity of a gown, who did contrive it all, and where did they come from? You'll carry off the glory of the evening. It ought to be the last. No, indeed, said Leslie. Barbara Freitchi must be last, of course, but I'm so glad you think it will do. I hope they'll be amused. Amused? If you could only see your own face. I see Sir Charles's, and that makes mine. The new performer, you perceive, was an actor with a title. That night's coach, driving up while the dress rehearsal of the other tableau was going on at the hall, brought Cousin Delight to the green cottage, and Leslie met her at the door. Sunday morning was a pause and rest and hush of beauty and joy. They sat, Delight and Leslie, by their open window, where the smell of the lately harvested hay came over from the wide, sunshiny entrance of the great barn, and away beyond stretched the pine woods, and the hills swelled near in dusky evergreen and indigo shadows, and lessened far down toward Winnipesiogi, to where, faint and tender and blue, the outline of little Ossipi peeped in between great shoulders so modestly, seen only through the clearest air on days like this. Leslie's little table, with fresh white cover, held evasive ferns and white convolvulus, and beside this, Cousin Delight's two books that came out always from the top of her trunk, her Bible, and her little daily food. Today the verses from Old and New Testaments were these. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. They had a talk about the first, the steps, the little details, not merely the general trend and final issue, if, indeed, these could be directed without the other. "'You always make me see things, Cousin Delight,' Leslie said. "'It is very plain,' Delight answered. "'If people only would read the Bible as they read even a careless letter from a friend, counting each word of value, and searching for more meaning and fresh inference to draw out the most. One word often answers great doubts and askings that have troubled the world.' Afterward they walked round by a still wood-path under the ledge to the north village, where there was a service.' It was a plain little church with unpainted pews, but the windows looked forth upon a green mountainside, 
and whispers of oaks and pines and river music crept in, and the breath of sweet water-lilies heaped in a great bowl upon the communion-table of common-stained cherry-wood floated up and filled the place. The minister, a quiet, grey-haired man, stayed his foot an instant at that simple altar before he went up the few steps to the desk. He had a sermon in his pocket from the text, The hairs of your head are all numbered. He changed it at the moment in his mind, and when presently he rose to preach, gave forth, in a tone touched, through the fresh presence of that reminding beauty, with the very spontaneousness of the Master's own saying, Consider the lilies. And then he told them of God's momently thought and care. There were scattered strangers from various houses among the simple rural congregation. Walking home through the pines again, Delight and Leslie and Dacky Thane found themselves preceded and followed along the narrow way. Sin Saxon and Frank Sherman came up and joined them when the wider openings permitted. Two persons just in front were commenting upon the sermon. "'Very fair for a country parson,' said a tall, elegant-looking man, whose broad intellectual brow was touched by dark hair slightly frosted, and whose lip had the curve that betokens self-reliance and strong decision. "'Very fair. All the better for not flying too high. Narrow, of course.' He seems to think the Almighty has nothing grander to do than to finger every little cog of the tremendous machinery of the universe, that he measures out the ocean of his purposes as we drop a liquid from a phial. To me it seems belittling the infinite. "'I don't know whether it is littleness or greatness, Robert, that must escape minutiae,' said his companion, apparently his wife. "'If we could reach to the particles, perhaps we might move the mountains.' "'We never agree upon this, Margie.' We won't begin again. To my mind, the grand plan of things was settled ages ago. The impulses generated that must needs work on. Foreknowledge and intention, doubtless, in that sense the hairs were numbered. But that there is a special direction and interference to-day for you and me, well, we won't argue, as I said, but I never can conceive it so, and I think a wider look at the world brings a question to all such primitive faith." The speakers turned down a sideway with this, leaving the ledge-path and their subject to our friends. Only to their thoughts at first, but presently Cousin Delight said in a quiet tone to Leslie, "'That doesn't account for the steps, does it?' "'I'm glad it can't,' said Leslie. Dacky Thane turned a look toward Leslie, as if he would gladly know of what she spoke, a look in which a kind of gentle reverence was strangely mingled with the open friendliness— I cannot easily indicate to you the sort of feeling with which the boy had come to regard this young girl. Just above him in years and thought, and in the attitude which true womanhood, young or old, takes toward man. He had no sisters, he had been intimately associated with no girl companions, he had lived with his brother and an uncle and a young aunt Rose. Leslie Goldthwaite's kindness had drawn him into the sphere of a new and powerful influence, something different in thought and purpose from the apparent unthought about her, and this lifted her up in his regard, and enshrined her with a sort of pure sanctity. He was sometimes really timid before her, in the midst of his frank chivalry. "'I wish you'd tell me,' he said suddenly, falling back with her as the path narrowed again. "'What are the steps?' "'It was a verse we found this morning, Cousin Delight and I,' Leslie answered, and as she spoke the color came up full in her cheeks, and her voice was a little shy and tremulous. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That one word seemed to make one certain. Steps, not path, nor the end of it, but all the way. 
Somehow she was quite out of breath as she finished. Meantime, Sin Saxon and Frank had got with Miss Goldthwaite and were talking too. Set spinning, they heard Sin Saxon say, and then let go. That was his idea. Well, only it seems to me there's been especial pains taken to show us it can't be done. Or else, why don't they find out perpetual motion? Everything stops after a while. Unless— I can't talk theologically, but I mean all right. You hit it again. You've a way of your own of putting things, Asenath, said Frank Sherman, with a glance that beamed kindly and admiringly upon her and her way. But you've put that clear to me as nobody else ever did. A proof set in the very laws themselves. Momentum that must lessen and lose itself with the square of the distance. The machinery, Cavill, won't do. "'Wheels, but a living spirit within the wheels,' said Cousin Delight. "'Every instant a fresh impulse. To think of it so makes it real, Miss Goldthwaite, and grand and awful.' The young man spoke with a strength in the clear voice that could be so light and gay. "'And tender, too, thou layest thine hand upon me,' said Delight Goldthwaite. Sin Saxon was quiet, her own thought coming back upon her with a reflective force, and a thrill at her heart at Frank Sherman's words. Had these two only planned tableau and danced Germans together before? Daggy Thane walked on by Leslie Goldthwaite's side, in his happy content touched with something higher and brighter through that instant's approach and confidence. If I were to write down his thought as he walked, it would be with phrase and distinction peculiar to himself and to the boy mind. It's the real thing with her. It don't make a fellow squirm like a pin put out at a caterpillar. She's good, but she isn't pious. This was the Sunday that lay between the busy Saturday and Monday. It is always so wherever Cousin Delight is, Leslie Goldthwaite said to herself, comparing it with other Sundays that had gone. Yet she, too, for weeks before, by the truth that had come into her own life and gone out from it, had been helping to make these moments possible. She had been shown upon, and had put forth, henceforth she should scarcely know when the fruit was ripening or sowing itself anew, or the good and gladness of it were at human lips. She was in Mrs. Linsford's room on Monday morning, putting high velvet-covered corks to the heels of her slippers, when Sin Saxon came over hurriedly and tapped at the door. "'Could you be two old women?' she asked the instant Leslie opened. "'Geneva Thorsby has given out. She says it's her cold, that she doesn't feel equal to it, but the amount of it is, she got her chill with the Shannons going away so suddenly, and the Amy Robsert and Queen Elizabeth picture being dropped, there was nothing else to put her in, and so she won't be Barbara. "'Won't be Barbara Frychie!' cried Leslie, with an astonishment as if it had been Angelhood refused. "'No, Barbara Frychie is only an old woman in a cap and kerchief, and she just puts her head out of a window. The flag is the whole of it, Geneva Thorsby says. "'May I do it?' "'Do you think I can be different enough in the two? "'Will there be time?' Leslie questioned eagerly. "'We'll change the program and put taking the oath between. "'The caps can be different, and you can powder your hair for one, "'and would it do to ask Miss Cradock for a front for the other?' Sin Saxon had grown delicate in her feeling for the dear old friend "'whose hair had once been golden. "'I'll tell her about it and ask her to help me contrive. "'She'll be sure to think of anything that can be thought of.' "'Only there's the dance afterward, and you had so much more costume for the other,' Sin Saxon said demurringly. "'Never mind, I shall be Barbara, and Barbara wouldn't dance, I suppose.' "'Mother Hubbard would, marvellously. 
Never mind, Leslie answered again, laying down the little slipper finished. She don't care what she is so that she helps along, Saxon said of her, rejoining the others in the hall. I'm ashamed of myself and all the rest of you beside her. Now make yourselves as fine as you please. We must pass over the hours as only stories and dreams do, and put ourselves, at ten of the clock that night, behind the green curtain and the footlights, in the blaze of the three rows of bright lamps, that one above the other poured their illumination from the left upon the stage, behind the wide picture-frame. Susan Joslyn and Frank Sherman were just posed for consolation. They had given Susan this part, after all, because they wanted Martha for taking the oath afterward. Leslie Goldthwaite was giving a hasty touch to the tent drapery and the grey blanket. Leonard Brookhouse and Dacky Thane manned the halyards for raising the curtain. There was the usual scuttling about the stage for hasty clearance, and Sinsaxon's hand was on the bell, when Graham Lowe sprang hastily in through the dressing-room upon the scene. "'Hold on a minute,' he said to Brookhouse. "'Miss Saxon, General Ingleside and party are over at Green's. Been there since nine o'clock. Oughtn't we to send compliments or something before we finish up?' Then there was a pressing forward and an excitement. The wounded soldier sprang from his couch. The nun came nearer, with a quick light in her eye. Leslie Goldthwaite, in her mob cap, quilted petticoat, big flowered calico train, and high-heeled shoes, two or three supernumeraries, in rebel grey, with bayonets, coming on in Barbara Frechie, and Sir Charles, bouncing out from somewhere behind, to the great hazard of the frame of lights, huddled together upon the stage and consulted. Dacky Thane had dropped his cord and almost made a rush off at the first announcement, but he stood now, with a repressed eagerness that trembled through every fibre, and waited. "'Would he come? Isn't it too late? Would it be any compliment? Would it be rude not to? All the patriotic pieces are just coming. Will the audience like to wait? Make a speech and tell him, you, Brookhouse. Oh, he must come. Barbara Freitchi and the flag. Just think. Isn't it grand? Oh, I'm so frightened.' These were the hurried sentences that made the buzz behind the scenes, while in front all the world wondered. Meanwhile, lamps trembled, the curtain vibrated, the very framework swayed. "'What is it? Fire?' queried a nervous voice from near the footlights. "'This won't do,' said Frank Sherman. "'Speak to them, Brookhouse. Dacky Thane, run over to Green's, and say, "'The ladies' compliments to General Ingleside and friends, "'and beg the honour of their presence at the concluding tableau.' Dacky was off with a glowing face, something like an odd, knowing smile twinkling out from the glow also, as he looked up at Sherman and took his orders. All this while he had said nothing. Leonard Brookhouse made his little speech, received with applause and a cheer. Then they quieted down behind the scenes, and a rustle and buzz began in front. Kept up for five minutes or so, in gentle fashion, till two gentlemen in plain clothes walked quietly in at the open door, at sight of whom, with instinctive certainty, the whole assembly rose. Leslie Goldthwaite, peeping through the folds of the curtain, saw a tall, grand-looking man, in what may be called the youth of middle age, every inch a soldier, bowing as he was ushered forward to a seat vacated for him, and followed by one younger, who modestly ignored the notice intended for his chief. Dacky Thane was making his way, with eyes alight and excited, down a side passage to his post. Then the two actors hurried once more into position— the stage was cleared by a whispered peremptory order, the bell rung once, the tent trembling with someone whisking further out of sight behind it, twice, and the curtain rose upon consolation. Lovely as the picture is, it was lovelier in the living tableau, 
there was something deep and intense in the pale calm of susan joslyn's face which they had not counted on even when they discovered that hers was the very face for the sister something made you thrill at the thought of what those eyes would show if the downcast quiet lids were raised the earnest gaze of the dying soldier met more perhaps in its uplifting for frank sherman had a look in this instant of enacting that he had never got before in all his practisings the picture was too real for applause almost it suddenly seemed for representation don't i know that face noel general ingleside asked in a low tone of his companion instead of answering at once the younger man bent further forward toward the stage and his own very plain broad honest face full over against the downcast one of the sister of mercy took upon itself that force of magnetic expression which makes a look felt even across a crowd of other glances as if there were but one straight line of vision and that between such two the curtain was going slowly down the veiling lids trembled and the paleness replaced itself with a slow-mounting flush of colour over the features still held motionless they let the cords run more quickly then she was getting tired they said the curtain had been up too long be that as it might nothing could persuade susan joslyn to sit again and consolation could not be repeated so then came mother hubbard and her dog the slow old lady and the knowing beast that was always getting one step ahead of her the possibility had occurred to leslie goldthwaite as she and dacky thane amused themselves one day with captain green's sagacious sir charles grandison a handsome black spaniel whose trained accomplishment was to hold himself patiently in any posture in which he might be placed until the word of release was given you might stand him on his hind legs with paws folded on his breast you might extend him on his back with helpless legs in air you might put him in any attitude possible to be maintained and maintain it he would faithfully until the signal was made from this prompting came the illustration of mother hubbard also leslie goldthwaite had seized the hidden suggestion of application and hinted it in certain touches of costume and order of performance nobody would think perhaps at first that the striped scarlet and white petticoat under the tucked-up train or the common print apron of dark blue figured with innumerable little white stars meant anything beyond the ordinary adjuncts of a traditional old woman's dress but when in the second scene the bonnet went on an ancient marvel of exasperated front and crown pitched over the forehead like an enormous helmet and decorated upon the side next to the audience with black and white eagle plumes spreading straight up from the fastening of an american shield above all when the dog himself appeared dressed in his clothes a cane an all-round white collar and a natty little tie a pair of three-dollar tasseled kid gloves dangling from his left paw and a small monitor hat with a big spread eagle stuck above the brim the remaining details of costume being of no consequence when he stood reading the news from a huge bulletin latest by cable from europe nobody could mistake the personification of old and young america it had cost much pains and many dainty morsels to drill sir charles with all the aid of his excellent fundamental education and the great fear had been that he might fail them at the last but the scenes were rapid in consideration of canine infirmity if the cupboard was empty mother hubbard's basket behind was not he got his morsels duly and the audience was requested to refrain from applause until the end refrain from laughter they could not as the idea dawned upon them and developed but sir charles was used to that in the execution of his ordinary tricks 
he could hardly have done without it better than any other old actor. A dog knows when he is having his day, to say nothing of doing his duty, and these things are as sustaining to him as to anybody. This state of his mind, manifest in his air, helped also to complete the young America expression. Mother Hubbard's mingled consternation and pride at each successive achievement of her astonishing puppy were inimitable. Each separate illustration made its point. Patriotism, especially, came in when the undertaker, bearing the pall with red-lettered border, rebellion, finds the dog with upturned, knowing eye and parted jaws, suggestive as much of a good grip as of laughter, half-risen upon four paws, as far from dead as ever, mounting guard over the old bone constitution. The curtain fell at last amid peals of applause and calls for the actors. Dacky Thane had accompanied with the reading of the ballad, slightly transposed and adapted, as Leslie led Sir Charles before the curtain, in response to the continued demand, he added the concluding stanza. The dame made a courtesy, the dog made a bow, the dame said, your servant, the dog said, bow-wow, which, with a suppressed, speak, sir, from Frank Sherman, was brought properly to pass. Done with cleverness and quickness from beginning to end, and taking the audience utterly by surprise, Leslie's little combination of wit and sagacity had been throughout a signal success. The actors crowded round her. "'We'd no idea of it! Capital! A great hit!' they exclaimed. "'Mother Hubbard is the star of the evening,' said Leonard Brookhouse. "'No, indeed,' returned Leslie, patting Sir Charles's head. "'This is the dog-star.' "'Rather a serious reflection upon the rest of us,' rejoined Brookhouse, shrugging his shoulders, as he walked off to take his place in the oath, and Leslie disappeared to make ready for Barbara Freitchie. Several persons before and behind the curtain were making up their minds, just now, to a fresh opinion. There was nothing so very slow or tame, after all, about Leslie Goldthwaite. Several others had known that long ago. Taking the oath was piquant and spirited. The touch of restive scorn that could come out on Martha Joslyn's face just suited her part, and Leonard Brookhouse was very cool and courteous, and handsome and gentlemanly triumphant as the Union officer. Barbara Freitchie was grand. Graham Lowe played Stonewall Jackson. They had improvised a pretty bit of scenery at the back, with a few sticks, some paint, brown carpet paper, and a couple of mosquito bars, a Dutch gable with a lattice window, vines trained up over it, and bushes below. It was a moving tableau, enacted to the reading of Whittier's glorious ballad. Only an old woman in a cap and kerchief, putting her head out at a garret window. That was all, but the fire was in the young eyes under the painted wrinkles and the snowy hair. The arm stretched itself out quick and bravely at the very instant of the pistol-shot that startled timid ears. One skilful movement detached and seized the staff in its apparent fall, and the liberty colors flashed full in rebel faces, as the broken lower fragment went clattering to the stage. All depended on the one instant action and expression. These were perfect. The very spirit of Barbara stirred her representative. The curtain began to descend slowly, and the applause broke forth before the reading ended. But a hand, held up, hushed it till the concluding lines were given in thrilling tones as the tableau was covered from sight. Barbara Freitchie's work is o'er, and the rebel rides on his raids no more. Honor to her, and let a tear fall for her sake on Stonewall's bier. Over Barbara Freitchie's grave, flag of freedom and union wave, peace and order and beauty draw, round thy symbol of light and law, and ever the stars above look down on thy stars below in Frederick Town. Then one great cheer broke forth and was prolonged to three. 
not be Barbara Freitchie. Leslie would have missed that thrill for the finest beauty part of all, for the applause. That was for the flag, of course, as Geneva Thorsby said. The benches were slid out at a window upon a lower roof, the curtain was looped up, and the footlights carried away. The music came up and took possession of the stage, and the audience hall resolved itself into a ballroom. Under the chandelier, in the middle, a tableau not set forth in the programme was rehearsed and added a few minutes after. Mrs. Thorsby, of course, had been introduced to the general. Mrs. Thorsby, with her bright, full grey curls and her handsome figure, stood holding him in conversation between introductions, graciously waving her privilege as newcomers claimed their modest word. Mrs. Thorsby took possession, had praised the tableau as quite creditable, really, considering the resources we had, and was following a slight lead into a long talk of information and advice on her part about Dixville Notch. The general thought he should go there, after a day or two at Outledge. Just here came up Dacky Thane. The actors in costume were gradually mingling among the audience, and Barbara Freitchi in white hair, from which there was not time to remove the powder, plain cap and kerchief, and brown woolen gown, with her silken flag yet in her hand, came with him. This boy, who was always everywhere, made no hesitation, but walked straight up to the central group, taking Leslie by the hand, Close to the general, he waited courteously for a long sentence of Mrs. Thorsby's to be ended, and then said simply, "'Uncle James, this is my friend, Miss Leslie Goldthwaite. My brother, Dr. Ingleside. Why, where's Noel?' Dr. Oliver Ingleside had stepped out of the circle in the last half of the long sentence. The sister of Mercy, no longer in costume, however, had come down the little flight of steps that led from the stage to the floor. At their foot the young army surgeon was shaking hands with Susan Jocelyn. These two had had the chess practice together, and other practice, down there among the southern hospitals. Mrs. Thorsby's face was very like some fabric subjected to chemical experiment, from which one colour and aspect had been suddenly and utterly discharged to make room for something different and new. Between the first and last there waits a blank. With this blank full upon her, she stood there for one brief, unprecedented instant in her life, a figure without presence or effect. I have seen a daguerreotype in which were cap, hair, and collar quite correct, what should have been a face rubbed out. Mrs. Thorsby rubbed herself out, and so performed her involuntary tableau. "'Of course I might have guessed. I wonder it never occurred to me,' Mrs. Linsford was replying presently to her vacuous inquiry. The name seemed familiar, too, only he called himself Dacky. I remember perfectly now. Old Jacob Thane, the Chicago millionaire. He married pretty little Mrs. Ingleside, the Illinois representative's widow. That first winter I was in Washington. Why, Dacky must be a dollar prince. He was just Dacky Thane, though, for all that. He and Leslie and Cousin Delight, the Joslins and the Inglesides, dear Miss Cradock, hurrying up to congratulate— Marmaduke Warren looking on without a shade of cynicism in the gladness of his face, and Sin Saxon and Frank Sherman flitting up in the pauses of dance and promenade. Well, after all, these were the central group that night. The pivot of the little solar system was changed, but the chief planets made but slight account of that. They just felt that it had grown very warm and bright. "'Oh, chicken little!' Mrs. Linsford cried to Leslie Goldthwaite, giving her a small shake with her good-night kiss at her door. "'How did you know the sky was going to fall?' "'And how have you led us all this chase to cheat fox-locks at last?' "'But that wasn't the way Chicken Little looked at it. "'She didn't care much for the bit of dramatic denouement "'that had come about by accident. "'Like a story, Eleanor said, 
or the touch of poetic justice that tickled Mrs. Linsford's world-instructed sense of fun. Dacky Thane wasn't a sum that needed proving. It was very nice that this famous general should be his uncle, but not at all strange. They were just the sort of people he must belong to, and it was nicest of all that Dr. Ingleside and Susan Jocelyn should have known each other. In the glory of their lives, she phrased it to herself, with a little flash of girl enthusiasm and a vague suggestion of romance. "'Why didn't you tell us?' Mrs. Linsford said to Dacky Thane next morning. "'Everybody would have—' she stopped. She could not tell this boy to his frank face that everybody would have thought more and made more of him because his uncle had got brave stars on his shoulders, and his father had died leaving two million or so of dollars. "'I know they would have,' said Dacky Thane. "'That was just it. What is the use of telling things? I'll wait till I've done something that tells itself.' There was a pretty general break-up at Outledge during the week following. The tableaus were the finale of the season's gaiety. Of this particular little episode, at least, which grew out of the association together of these personages of our story. There might come a later set, and later doings, but this last week of August sent the mere summer birds fluttering. Madame Ruth must be back in New York to prepare for the reopening of her school. Mrs. Linsford had letters from her husband, proposing to meet her by the first in N— and so the Haddons would be off, the Thorsbys had stayed as long as they cared to in any one place where there seemed no special inducement. General Ingleside was going through the mountains to Dixville Notch. Rose Ingleside, bright and charming as her name, just a fit flower to put beside our lady's delight, finding out at once, as all girls and women did, her sweetness, and leaning more and more to the rare and delicate sphere of her quiet attraction. Oliver and Dacky Thane, these were his family party, but there came to be question about Leslie and Delight. Would not they make six? And since Mrs. Linsford and her sisters must go, it seemed so exactly the thing for them to fall into, otherwise Miss Goldthwaite's journey hither would hardly seem to have been worth while. Early September was so lovely among the hills, opportunities for a party to Dixville Notch would not come every day. In short, Dacky had set his heart upon it. Rose begged, the general was as pressing as true politeness would allow, and it was settled. "'Only,' St. Saxon said, suddenly, on being told, "'I should like if you would tell me, General Ingleside, "'the precise military expression synonymous with "'taking the wind out of one's sails, "'because that's just what you've done for me.' "'My dear Miss Saxon, in what way?' "'Invited my party, some of them, and taken my road. "'That's all. "'I spoke first, though I didn't speak out loud. "'See here.' "'And she produced a letter from her mother, received that morning.' "'Observe the date, if you please. August 24. "'Your letter reached me yesterday, and it had travelled round as usual two days in Papa's pocket beside. "'I always allow for that. I quite approve your plan, provided, as you say, the party be properly matronized. "'I, hm, hm, that refers to little explanations of my own. "'Well, all is, I was going to do this very thing with enlargements, and now Miss Cradock and I may collapse.' Why, when with you and your enlargements we might make the most admirable combination? At least the Dixville Road is open to all. Very kind of you to say so, the first part, I mean, if you could possibly have helped it. But there are insurmountable obstacles on that Dixville Road, to us. There's a lion in the way. Don't you see we should be like the little ragged boys running after the soldier company? We couldn't think of putting ourselves in that bony light, especially before the eyes of Mrs. Grundy. This last, as Mrs. Thorsby swept impressively along the piazza in full dinner costume, 
"'Unless you go first and we run after you,' suggested the general. "'All the same, you talked Dixville to her the very first evening, you know. "'No, nobody can have an original Dixville idea any more. "'And I've been asking them, the Joslins and Mr. Warren and all, "'and was just coming to the Goldthwaites, "'and now I've got them on my hands, "'and I don't know where in the world to take them. "'That comes of keeping an inspiration to ripen. "'Well, it's a lesson of wisdom.' Only, as Effie says about her housekeeping, the two dearest things in living are butter and experience. Amidst laughter and banter and repartee, they came to it, of course, the most delightful combination and joint arrangement. Two wagons, the General's and Dr. Ingleside's two saddle-horses, Frank Sherman's little mountain mare, that climbed like a cat and was sure-footed as a chamois, these with a side-saddle for the use of a lady sometimes upon the last, make up the general equipment of the expedition. All Mrs. Grundy knew was that they were wonderfully merry and excited together, until this plan came out as the upshot. The Joslins had not quite consented at once, though their faces were bright with a most thankful appreciation of the kindness that offered them such a pleasure, nay, that entreated their companionship as a thing so genuinely coveted to make its own pleasure complete. Somehow, when the whole plan developed, there was a little sudden shrinking on Sue's part, perhaps on similar grounds to Sin Saxon's perception of insurmountable obstacles, but she was shyer than Sin of putting forth her objections, and the general zeal and delight, and Martha's longing look, unconscious of cause why not, carried the day. There had never been a blither setting off from the giant's cairn. All the remaining guests were gathered to see them go. There was not a mote in the blue air between Outledge and the crest of Washington— all the subtle strength of the hills, oars and sweet waters, and resinous perfumes, and breath of healing leaf and root, distilled to absolute purity in the clear ether that only sweeps from such bare, thunder-scoured summits, made up the exhilarant draught in which they drank the mountain joy and received afar off its baptism of delight. It was beautiful to see the Joslins so girlish and gay. It was lovely to look at old Miss Cradock, with her little tremors of pleasure, and the sudden glistenings in her eyes, Sin Saxon's pretty face was clear and noble, with its pure impulse of kindliness, and her fun was like a sparkle upon deep waters. Dacky Thane rushed about in a sort of general satisfaction which would not let him be quiet anywhere. Outsiders looked with a kind of new, half-jealous respect on these privileged few who had so suddenly become the general's party. Sin Saxon whispered to Leslie Goldthwaite, "'It's neither his nor mine, honeysuckle. It's yours. Henny Penny and all the rest of it, as Mrs. Linsford said. Leslie was glad with the crowning gladness of her bright summer. "'That girl has played her cards well,' Mrs. Thorsby said of her, a little below her voice, as she saw the general himself making her especially comfortable with Cousin Delight in a back seat. "'Particularly, my dear madam,' said Marmaduke Warren, coming close and speaking with clear emphasis, "'as she could not possibly have known that she had a trump in her hand.' To tell of all that week's journeying, and of Dixville Notch, the adventure, the brightness, the beauty, and the glory, the sympathy of abounding enjoyment, the waking of new life that it was to some of them, the interchange of thought, the cementing of friendships, would be to begin another story, possibly a yet longer one. Leslie's summer, according to the calendar, is already ended. Much in this world must pause unfinished, or come to abrupt conclusion." people die suddenly at last, after the most tedious illnesses. Married and lived happy ever after, is the inclusive summary that winds up many an old tale, whose time of action only runs through hours. If in this summer time with Leslie Goldthwaite your thoughts have broadened somewhat with hers, 
Some questions for you have been partly answered. If it has appeared to you how a life enriches itself by drawing toward and going forth into the life of others through seeing how this began with her, it is no unfinished tale that I leave with you. A little picture I will give you farther on, a hint of something farther yet, and say good-bye. Some of them came back to Outledge, and stayed far into the still-rich September. Delight and Leslie sat before the green cottage one morning, in the heart of a golden haze and a gorgeous bloom. All around the feet of the great hills lay the garlands of early-ripened autumn. You see nothing like it in the lowlands, nothing like the fire of the maples, the carbuncle splendor of the oaks, the flash of scarlet sumacs and creepers, the illumination of every kind of little leaf. In its own way, upon which the frost-touch comes down from those tremendous heights that stand rimy in each morning's sun, trying on white caps that by and by shall pull down heavily over their brows, till they cloak all their shoulders also in the like sculptured folds, to stand and wait, blind, awful chrysalides, through the long winter of their death and silence. Delight and Leslie had got letters from the Joslins and Dacky Thane. There was news in them such as thrills always the half-comprehending sympathies of girlhood. Leslie's vague suggestion of romance had become fulfillment. Dacky Thane was wild with rejoicing that dear old Noel was to marry Sue. She had always made him think of Noel and his ways and likings ever since the day of the game of chess that by his means came to grief. It was awful slang, but he could not help it. It was just the very jolliest go. Susan Jocelyn's quiet letter said, "'That kindness which kept us on and made it beautiful for us, strangers at Outledge, has brought to me by God's providence this great happiness of my life.'" After a long pause of trying to take it in, Leslie looked up. "'What a summer this has been! So full! So much has happened! I feel as if I had been living such a great deal!' You have been living in others' lives. You have had a great deal to do with what has happened. Oh, Cousin Delight, I have only been among it. I could not do, except such a very little. There is a working from us beyond our own. But if our working runs with that... You have done more than you will ever know, little one. Delight Goldthwaite spoke very tenderly. Her own life, somehow, had been closely touched through that which had grown and gathered about Leslie. It depends on that abiding, in me and I in you, so shall ye bear much fruit. She stopped. She would not say more. Leslie thought her talking rather wide of the first suggestion, but this child would never know, as Delight had said, what a centre, in her simple loving way, she had been for the working of a purpose beyond her thought. Since Axon came across the lawn, crowned with gold and scarlet, trailing creepers twined about her shoulders, and flames of beauty in her full hands. Miss Cradock says she praised God with every leaf she took. I'm afraid I forgot to, for the little ones. But I was so greedy and so busy getting them all for her. Come, Miss Cradock, we've got no end of pressing to do to save half of them. She can't do enough for her, O oh Cousin Delight. The leaves are glorified, after all. Asenath never was so charming, and she is more beautiful than ever. Delight's glance took in also another face than Asenath's, grown into something in these months that no training or taking thought could have done for it. Yes, she said, in the same still way in which she had spoken before. That comes too, as God wills, all things shall be added. My hint is of a western home, just outside the leaping growth and ceaseless stir of a great western city, a large, low, cozy mansion, 
with a certain old-world mellowness and rest in its aspect, looking forth, even as it does on one side, upon the illimitable sunset-ward sweep of the magnificent promise of the new, on the other it catches a glimpse, beyond and beside the town, of the calm blue of a fresh-water ocean. The place is Ingleside. The general will call it by no other than the family name, the sweet Scottish synonym for home-corner, and here, while I have been writing and you reading these pages, he has had them all with him. Oliver and Susan, on their bridal journey, which waited for summer-time to come again, though they have been six months married, Rose, of course, and Dacky Thane, home in vacation from a great school where he is studying hard, hoping for West Point by and by. Leslie Goldthwaite, who is Dacky's inspiration still, and our flower, our pansy, our delight, golden-eyed lady of innumerable sweet names. The sweetest and truest of all, says the brave soldier and high-souled gentleman, is that which he has persuaded her to wear for life. Delight Ingleside. End of section 4 Recording by Brooke Favorite